Oh, wait. Before we get to today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask. We're considering some changes to this podcast, and we'd love your input. So we're hoping you'll take three minutes to answer a listener survey at bit.ly slash edsurgepodsurvey. And it'll also help us get a better sense of who's listening so we can find sponsors to support this free series. Oh, and I almost forgot, we will pick one person who fills out the survey, um, one person at random, who will receive a $100 Amazon gift card. So you'd be entered to win that if you uh, participate. The link again is bit.ly slash survey. It really is a quick one. So thank you for your time and for listening. Now, cue the usual theme. There's that point where... It was too expensive for me to buy. I just had didn't have the money at the time to fork up $200 for a book. So I had to like look up the book online or figure out if the library had it. And if the library didn't have it, I either had to borrow the book from friends. Um, and I've struggled through some classes not having the book. That's a student at San Francisco State University. It's from a YouTube video that college officials there made to promote Open Educational Resources, or OER. Basically, they're trying to get professors to switch away from expensive commercial textbooks and try out low-cost or free alternatives. If you go online, you can find lots of these videos that colleges have made with students explaining how the cost of textbooks is a big barrier to succeeding for them. And they're pretty compelling. I think many of us can relate to the initial sticker shock of a $200 book. I can remember that in some of my college courses, students wouldn't even bother to buy the textbook sometimes. Either you'd try your shot at getting through the course without a textbook because you couldn't afford it, or you were one of the lucky ones who knew the kid with the PDF version and you'd try to get a free copy from them. So pitches like the one in that video work to convince many faculty to try OER. In fact, a new study out this month from the Babson Research Group found that 13% of faculty surveyed use OER materials in their courses. And that's up from just 6% last year, which basically doubled in one year. But fans of OER are increasingly facing a problem. Since this whole movement was basically touted as, as a free alternative to traditional textbooks, but the people running these efforts are realizing that it still costs something to produce these materials, and professors often need guidance in finding which ones are high quality when these publishers aren't in the loop to market the materials and, and put them together. The movement is growing up, though, and so now folks are looking for ways to build funding and support for OER in colleges themselves, and that often means hiring coordinators or offering small grants and other incentives. And in the process, the OER pitch is changing as well. While cost is still a big part of the draw, people are increasingly talking about student success and pointing to the fact that when these textbooks are open and unlicensed online, that lets professors customize them and mix and match them in new ways. And that can improve the quality of the education. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Today, we're diving into how the OER movement is changing. And we'll check in with a couple of people on the front lines of the movement to hear from them as well. So when you think about it, it's, it's kind of an interesting problem growing up and, and trying to build a support system for OER. Sydney, it sounds like you learned that some of these efforts are happening at a national level, right? Yeah. Last year, I sat down with Nicole Allen. She's the director of Open Education for Spark and a longtime national expert in OER. She pointed out that last March, Congress funded the first ever open textbook pilot. It's a $5 million grant program that supports higher education institutions that want to use, create, or just offer open textbooks to save students money. 
It was the first time Congress had ever put money directly toward open educational resources, and it was part of the overall uh, college affordability uh, budget set aside. And it's a really strong message from Congress that not only textbook affordability is part of the national strategy for higher ed affordability, but that open educational resources are the way to go to achieve that. And state legislators are getting into the act as well. So there are various uh, approaches to open educational resources legislation that we see across states. Uh, Some put funding towards it. Some require OER marking and course catalogs. Others create task forces or do studies. Interesting things are happening at individual campuses, too. At a recent conference, I I ran into Julie Lang from Penn State University. Her title is OER coordinator for that system. And her whole job is to manage efforts to promote these open course materials. And she said jobs like hers are popping up at colleges around the country. So we just talked with UCF, and they're hiring what they're calling an affordable content librarian. Um, I've also heard through the open ed librarian that I work with at Penn State that other institutions are doing the same thing. They, they might call it a different name, but what the purpose of the position is is to help faculty um, utilize either library resources or affordable resources. Uh, at Penn State, we say that's $50 and under per course. Um, or utilize OER. So I do think the libraries are really looking at this, and most of the positions I've heard of are in that area. I was curious what faculty attitudes are these days. So I asked Lang what professors typically say when they're asked to spend time trying this new open textbook approach instead of whatever they've been using in the past from publishers. Uh, the response has been great with faculty. They're very interested in it. They want to learn more about it. And I just, I think they have the awareness that this is something we need to do for retention too. Penn State even set up a grant program for faculty who want to develop an open textbook of their own. They have to either uh, adapt an OER resource, so, you know, either remixing or adding some of their own content to something that already exists. That's a one-semester project. And then authoring is for the folks that really want to create something because they are not finding something to meet their needs. Um, So some examples of that are our open um, Spanish textbook that is very... um, It's customized every semester based on uh, the majors of the students in the course. Um, We also have a hospitality management authoring project, which we're going to be doing some video and photos from the kitchen uh, (laughs) area that the students can use, but to provide them with some of that information up front before they actually get there in the physical space. Um, So that's just some examples of things that faculty wanted to do that they were not able to do before this grant program. Both Lang and Allen say that professors see other benefits besides saving students money, and that they're trying to do more these days to explain those things. Historically, the open education movement has gotten a lot of traction, especially here in the United States, around cost, because that is such a pain point at our institutions, and it's kind of been the foot in the door. But that's not going to be the conversation going forward. We've gotten to the point where conversations about the bigger picture of open are happening, not just among thought leaders, but among faculty members and librarians and students, which is really exciting because the true value of open isn't about reducing costs. You know, that's important, but it's about 
creating the ability for, for people to make content better. Let's face it, so many textbooks that I know I was assigned in, in college, there were so many chapters that we never even were asked to look at. So I think part of the idea is if it's something the professor is involved in, in tailoring, then everything in there is going to be for that particular class. OER didn't immediately take off, and part of the challenge with getting faculty or even policymakers on board has been that not everyone agrees on what open really is. Some think that only online resources that are free of charge to students should qualify as OER, while others say that OER materials can cost money if there's a small fee that needs to kind of defray their their creation. But the important thing is that they're openly licensed, and so no corporate entity is claiming kind of the ownership of the material, which means the professor can kind of do whatever they want with it, with it and add to it. You can see that confusion playing out in, in various efforts involving OER, whether it's state legislation to course catalogs. But OER advocates like Alan say the definition should be simple. One of the things that we see varying is how states define or don't define uh, OER. And it's one of those cases where definitions really matter. And uh, open means something very specific. And that's uh, that the resource is both free and it is released with the permissions to freely use it in uh, all of the, the ways that are allowed on the internet. So reuse, revise, remix, redistribute. Meanwhile, traditional for-profit publishers are starting to take notice. And that's meant even more confusion around what's really, quote-unquote, open. Ten years ago, the traditional publishing industry, the messaging was very much along the lines of, you know, there's no free lunch. And how could free materials possibly be high quality? And, uh, you know, pointing to the fact that there weren't many examples of, of open educational resources. And it's been interesting to see the evolution. And, you know, now we've seen uh, most of the largest companies now have some kind of OER product or product that they call OER and uh, are using openly licensed content which is good in the sense that it shows that this is viable. But it's also challenging because the way that they're interpreting the idea of openness is not the way that this community thinks of openness. So the traditional publishing industry, the way that they think about OER is that it has an open license on it. And... If you uh, have an open license, it lets anybody do anything that they want with the material as long as they follow, you know, the attribution requirements. And uh, what publishers have been doing is taking open content and then wrapping it up in a, a platform or a product that they then sell to students. So it may be available on the Internet for free, but if you're using it in a course, you don't have to pay for it. And that's not open. So from our perspective... Open is about letting anyone do anything they want with content, add value to it, innovate upon it. And it's great that the traditional publishers are finding this content valuable. But where we draw the line is when you apply the term open to something that's closed. What the publishers get, the traditional publishers get, is a bunch of high-quality content that they can use for free and add value to. They don't also get to call it open when it's being delivered in a closed way. Lang thinks publishers are worried, or at least that they have room to be. 
clients. I do. I really do. Uh, I've spoken with some, you know, recently, um, and they're all trying to figure out ways to um, fill the niche. And what I mean by that is open content is out there. You can get it. Anybody can use it. You can give students the link. But the missing piece is either putting it all together and building some kind of cohesive thing, which we're hoping to do um, with the affordable course transformation. But publishers see that as an opportunity to use proprietary um, systems to provide a little bit more than just open content. They you know, utilize uh, interactive and personalized learning environments and then package it with OER and try to make it affordable for students that way. I think that is their, um, they're looking at that as their next uh, path. Yeah, I mean, is there a world where the publishers essentially may become more adaptive learning software companies instead of? I think so. Instead yeah. of this content. Mm -hmm. I really think so. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with someone yesterday and they said that's exactly what their company's doing. So, And I also think uh, someone had mentioned in our session about the academic freedom aspect of it. I think sometimes folks feel like, oh, this is going to be um, kind of like pigeonhole me or something, right? And it's going to be like, this is just a set of things that I have to use. And they don't know that it really allows them to do more customization and adaption and changing things. And so I think that's been kind of their aha is like, wow, I can, I can really make this what I want it to be kind of thing. Yeah. So what's next? Well, we are continuing to push for uh, federal funding for open educational resources. So we actually got the 5 million open textbook pilot renewed in the most recent budget. So uh, the Department of Education will be putting out a new call for proposals on that in the next year or so. Uh, so that's a really great opportunity for institutions to uh, put together new projects and new ideas that can help really advance the field. Uh, we are looking ahead to the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act in 2008, when it was last reauthorized, Congress passed some provisions requiring uh, textbook price disclosure and requiring institutions to mark textbook prices in course catalogs. And I think there's, you know, going to be an interesting conversation about what's what's next in in the Higher Education Act. So, you know, certainly. It, making an OER grant program permanent is one of the things that we'll be pushing for. But there are also potential statutory changes that we could make to help make sure that there's, you know, standardized ways of marking OER in course catalogs now that there are at least four states that are doing that. From what I've read and, and what I'm kind of looking at is I feel like there is going to be more of a push to involve students in the OER creation process. I think that's happening. Um, so I, I don't know how that will play out, but I, I think that more faculty are going to be going in that direction and really kind of harnessing, you know, the power of OER to be um, customizable, adaptable, and the fact that students can contribute to it as part of their coursework. So what started as a pitch to offer simply a cheaper substitute for textbooks is headed into a new area trying to reimagine what a textbook could be in the digital age. I mean, let's face it, this is a time where pretty much anything can be just looked up online, and so maybe it is time to rethink what a course material ought to be. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. Yeah, we're on Spotify now and Google Play. We're out there. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for more on the future of education. 
Oh, yeah, it's me again. I wanted to ask one last time. If you haven't done it already, please take our listener survey at bit.ly at edsurgepodsurvey. That's bit.ly slash edsurgepodsurvey. It just takes about three minutes. It's, it's the best way you can help right now to support the show. Thanks.